to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 37. But before we get rolling, Rich has a bundle of retroactive history for you. Retroactive history or just current history, depending on how you want to look at it. This being the last recorded episode of 2022. Hey, you know we record these a ways out. I can announce that I was unsuccessful in finishing my DC War Collection this year. Only four to go, though. One All-American Men of War and three are Army at War. Gotta like my chances to wrap it up in 2023. Also here to tell you, as Max has said several times, that if you haven't been visiting the Facebook page, you're missing out. I recently made an album based on war-related comic cover mashups by Super Team Family. Go to braveandboldlost.blogspot.com to see all their masterful mayhem. The greatest team-ups that never happened, but should have. In our album, Snoopy and the Enemy Ace, G.I. Robot and Dynamut, Sergeant Rock versus Red Skull, Unknown Soldier and Doctor Strange, and so many more. Go check out both their site and ours. And to rub more salt in that wound, you missed our first ever Weird Warriors podcast giveaway. I asked a trivia question of after posting a remembrance for comic legend Joe Simon. None of his work had appeared in the pages of Weird War Tales, but since I'd A, met him and got an autograph in a Captain America comic, B, visited his grave at Red Dirt Honors, and C, he was Joe freaking Simon, I made an exception. There are two other creators whose work never appeared in these pages, but will be remembered when the date of their death arrives. No correct guesses were received. So I added some hints. One is brought up much more often, is infinitely more well-known than the other, but is also a bit of an outside-the-box selection. They died three days apart, but in different years. All episodes of the show are in play, including special missions and road warriors. As of this recording, we still hadn't received any correct answers. The first five right answers will receive a star cut from a U.S. flag that Sam Glansman ran up the flagpole outside his home before he died. I kept the tattered remains after replacing it for Sue, as mentioned in an earlier episode of the show and made a memento for her out of pieces of it. I kept the rest for situations just like this. See, folks, we're a multi-platform show here at WWT. Gotta check them all. Intel Report. Another story dive into an ongoing title. Fables, 28 and 29. Released by DC Vertigo in October 2004. War Stories. Script by Bill Willingham, pencils by Tony Atkins, inks by Jimmy Palmiotti. Featuring Dog Company and Big B Wolf. Set in World War II Germany, a band of American infiltrators is sent behind enemy lines to locate a monster named after a certain doctor who's too tough to kill. All right, there you go. That's some retroactive history and intel report and... As usual, before we dive straight into the issue, we'll take a little break. And when we get done with the podcast promo break, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. 
you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. Is an exploration of the DC Comics character, the first superhero to use the name of the vigilante. First published in Action Comics 42 in September 1941, amid comics' golden age and carried as a continuous feature, during those years the vigilante was also a member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory was one of the first DC heroes to appear on the cinema screen in his own serial. Reappearing in the Bronze Age, the Vigilante had a 1970s renaissance throughout the DC Universe. Greg Saunders, the Prairie Troubadour, leads a double life as a modern country and western musician, while also delivering justice throughout North America as a mass crime fighter, using the tactics and weapons of his rural Wyoming upbringing with his friends Billy Gunn and Stuff Leong, Many a nefarious scheme was foiled with six guns, ingenuity, a motorcycle, and a twirling lariat. Howdy, I'm Ranger Gord. Help me follow the trail of the Vigilante on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And we're back. So, podcast promo break over. We're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 37. And Rich is right here to give you the cover detail. Joe Kubert gives Luis Dominguez his job back. 25 cents. The blue title sits on an orange sky over a blazing sun. A blonde German soldier drops his rifle and flees from a skeletal ghost wearing a billowing cape and a horned helmet. The shield-wielding ghost is on a horse galloping after the German with a lance lowered at his back. Behind the horseman, Five more skeletal ghosts are also chasing the German, waving muskets, axes, and halberds. In the lower right corner reads, Special, an unusual full-length war novel. And uh, addressing our teaser from last episode, uh, many moons ago, Tim DeForest sent us an unsolicited gag cover of this issue with a speech balloon over the soldier's head reading, I haven't been listening to the Weird Warriors podcast, and now ghosts are trying to kill me. I shared it at the time on the Facebook page, and it's in the episode album. I had to do a show shout-out, though, so you thought I forgot, Timmy? Oh, no. See, people? Again, you have to check the Facebook page. You're missing out. Cover date, May 1975. Date of release, February 2nd, 1975. No killjoy. Comments and commendations. While I get the terror on the German's face, the blues of the title and the ghosts on the oranges and browns of the sky and earth hurts my eyes a little bit. The ghosts behind the writers seem like quick sketches, too. This might be the worst cover of the run so far. Dominguez follows up the return of Joe Kubert with this monstrosity? Yeah, bad start. Right now, I agree with you that this is one of LD's lesser covers. But I disagree that it compares badly to Kubert's cover for issue 36. That cover, to me, was boring to look at, and the figures within looked bored to be there. I gotta say, even even Kubert sometimes has a slightly flat tire for me. Considering the subject matter on that cover, that should not have been the case, and especially considering the artist involved. Uh, Back to this cover, yes, this does look to be a quickly dashed out piece of work by Luis Dominguez, and it has nothing to do with the story inside. 
but it's at least exciting and dynamic. It catches the eye, yes, in a garish kind of way, or you don't want to stare at it for too long, but it does the job. And I think that's better than what the cover for 36 did. So that little disagreement with me, who is obviously right, out of the way, we will dive into this full-length battle tale. The Three Wars of Don Q. 18 pages. Script by Arnold Drake. Art by Leopoldo Duranona. As referenced on the cover, this is literally a full-length story, as in there aren't even any chapter breaks. So we're going to break this up evenly between us at the issue centerfold. Synopsis. Nick Taylor is an American war correspondent covering the Spanish Civil War. Discovering that Germans are secretly fighting in the war, Taylor's chased into a family crypt to prevent him from exposing the news to the world. Taylor's surprised when a coffin in the crypt opens and a portly man emerges. One word from him to the pursuing Germans, and Taylor's a dead man. But as he hides, the local covers form as a German soldier comes into view. No one dwells in Montez Castle except old Sancho. Come, I will show you every room. As Sancho leads the German away, Taylor wonders why he's A, helping him, and B, lying in a coffin. When Sancho returns, he gushes over Taylor. Though they wore strange garb to deceive me, I knew it was the Moorish troops pursuing you, and I led them away, my master. Praise be that thou hast returned, Don Quixote. It is I, your loyal servant, Sancho Panza. Taylor is shocked. This crazy man thinks of a character created by Miguel Cervantes four centuries ago, and I'm going to let him think it, so he doesn't betray me to the Germans. Sancho leads Taylor to his chambers, where everything was just as you left it. Taylor quickly falls asleep, only to awaken to Sancho pointing a knife at him. Demented eyes quickly cool. Forgive me, sire. I dreamt that a false don slept in your bed. I am glad I was wrong. Sancho leads Taylor to the courtyard, where armor and steeds await. We ride against the moors at dawn. Dressed in the finest armor from the Smiths of Toledo, Taylor can't believe what he's doing. He's a war correspondent with a story that will earn him a Pulitzer Prize. He has to get out of here. But Sancho doesn't react to Taylor's demands. In fact, he has something to give Taylor, hidden in the dungeon where the Moors had first imprisoned the Don. Taylor is curious. Cervantes himself had been imprisoned by the Moors. Could this be true? From a hidden compartment in a table, Sancho pulls out a talisman of a horned cat, a gift from that witch the Don had saved on Crete. Cervantes had fought on Crete, and the talisman looked old enough. Come on, Taylor, you're getting punchy. Mounting their steeds, the two men ride into the bright Spanish sun. Sancho suddenly points into the sky. Sire, the Moors have sent falcons of war against us. Their talons are like knives. Run, the bird will claw out your eyes. It's not a falcon, Taylor realizes, but a German fighter bearing down on a strafing run. He knows they can't outrun it, so instead he reins his horse and charges, hoping to get lucky and ram his spear into the plane's motor. To his shock, the fighter transforms into a falcon. Taylor heaves his spear. It strikes the raptor in the throat, and the airplane crashes and explodes. He's stunned it actually worked. He'd heard of Ethiopian tribesmen doing it to Italian planes. But him? As the two men ride away from the flaming wreckage, Taylor wonders if the talisman had anything to do with it. Suddenly, he's amazed to see a fire-breathing dragon nearby. The dragon sees them, too, 
that attacks. Squinting at the vision, the dragon changes into a German tank. Sancho, your musket, he commands. Sancho hands it over as Taylor dismounts. The incredulous tank crew sees a man in ancient armor attacking them and fires, but can't bring him down. Taylor climbs atop the tank, jams the musket into an air vent, and fires. A mortal cry comes from inside the tank, which drives out of control over an embankment. Taylor saves himself by grabbing a tree branch. Turning around, Taylor is horrified to discover he and Sancho have been captured by a squad of General Franco's crack North African troops, 20 generations removed from the Moors that had imprisoned Cervantes. Marched off, they are soon locked in the dungeon they had left only hours before. But Sancho is concerned, for the Moors had left them a key with which to escape. Taylor dubiously pulls out the talisman. Okay, magic talisman, if that's what you are. Get us out of here. A guard stares in disbelief as the two prisoners disappear in a blinding flash. Next thing Taylor knows, they're in a grassy field. It's incredible. It worked. Of course, Don Q, the talisman always protects you, Sancho exclaims. But as they walk off, Taylor's problem is still the same. Finding a telegraph office where he could cable his newspaper. What a story! Don Quixote rides again! They trudge through the craggy countryside until a woman runs towards them. Help! The Moors are coming! You must save the town! She gestures towards a distant castle. Know thou that the king shall reward thee well! Taylor is puzzled. What's that crazy, archaic talk about? Spain threw out the king in 1931. Is everyone crazy here? Sire! The Moors! Sancho cries, pointing. Wielding a shield with a star and crescent moon in one hand and a scimitar in the other, a man in a turban and a flowing cape charges them on horseback, screaming, Death to the Spanish infidel! Taylor doesn't have time to process this new discovery other than to acknowledge the Moor is also wearing ancient armor. He simply picks up a large rock and lets it fly. It smashes into the Moor's face, stunning him. Pulling him out of the saddle, Taylor mounts the horse as a second Moor attacks. Pulling his sword, the two adversaries engage in mortal combat, and Taylor realizes he's fighting a war that ended 400 years ago. In an unguarded moment by the Moor, Taylor rams his blade home, killing the horseman. But there's no time to rest as a third mounted Moor swoops in. He effortlessly disarms Taylor with one swing of his blade. As he reaches back to finish Taylor off, the Moor screams and collapses. Sancho holds Taylor's dropped sword, blood dripping down its length. But then a wave of Moors sweeps over them, taking them prisoner. The sentence is death, and Sancho is first. As he steered toward the executioner's block, he cries out to Taylor, Use the talisman! Save us before both our heads are taken! Taylor is a believer this time. Don't fail us. Take us from here fast. As the axe swings back to end Sancho's life, a swirling cloud like 10,000 desert winds enshrouds them. The Moors scream as the two men disappear. The effect is different this time. More sickening motion than blinding light. Taylor and Sancho arrive in a castle dungeon with a cellmate awaiting them. It's a pink gorilla in a white bodysuit with a large black circle on its stomach. Even more surprising, it speaks to them. General Zam is expecting you. Follow me with the talisman. 
That's why you were sent for. Even for a man who has been through this past 24 hours, Taylor is staggered by this new development. As a similarly dressed General Zan, also a talking gorilla, greets them. The gorilla's time scanner had sent out a beam to retrieve the talisman. Taylor and Sancho were a bonus. Welcome to the year 3254, the sixth year of World War XII. Humans had exterminated themselves in World War V, giving mutants a chance to take over and learn from their mistakes. Unfortunately, history repeats, obviously, with seven more world wars, but hey. And the Reds are locked in a final struggle with the Greens. The Greens believe in the power of the Armstrow, an ancient idol of unknown origin. If the talisman can make the Armstrow speak, and tell the Greens there must be peace. Sancho interrupts Zan. Only the great Don Q can use the power of the talisman. Taylor tries to explain that he's not really Don Quixote, but Zam doesn't believe him or doesn't care. After all, he had been in Don Q's time with the talisman. The two men are quickly dressed in similar bodysuits to the gorillas and sent to an ancient bull arena that the green apes now use as a house of worship. Sancho asks why Taylor doesn't just use the talisman to free them again. But General Zam has left his time scanner locked on. Until it releases them, Taylor and Sancho are stuck there. Before them is Armstrong. Taylor is amused to discover that the idol is nothing more than an old promotional poster for the movie King Kong. Armstrong is the lettering remnant for the lead actor's name, Robert Armstrong. The green leader speaks to their idol, and these are somewhat green-tinted apes, I think baboons. We'll get to that about the art later on. So the green leader speaks to their idol and says... Oh, Armstrong, long have we battled to bring your will to all Earth. Now give us a sign that we may swell our strength for final victory. Taylor mentally commands the talisman to make the idol speak. And it does. I, people, I bring you an ancient message. Hammer thy swords into plowshares and study war no more. Pandemonium erupts among the greens. Study war no more. Armstrong says, lay down your arms. Peace shall reign forever. Returning to the Red Castle, General Zam is pleased with Taylor and Sancho. With the power of my science and your magic, together we shall be supreme. The American is dismayed. Hold it. You weren't trying to save Earth from destruction. You were using this peace for your ends. Of course, there is no peace. War is a law of nature, but you have no choice. The time scanner holds you prisoners. You're right about that, Taylor admits, except for one thing. The talisman has the power to destroy the time scanner. I don't know why Taylor figured that out, but okay. In quick order, he commands the talisman to do just that and to bring the castle down and to return the two of them to 1938 Spain. A handy thing, isn't it? Which the talisman does all of that. When the blinding light fades, Taylor screams. Sancho's skeleton rests in the same coffin he had emerged from before. The talisman had crumbled to dust as well. Nothing makes any sense. 
you're telling us. But Taylor has an incredible story to file. However, his editor, understandably, doesn't believe him. A cock and bull story about Don Q, a 400-year-old Sancho and green monkeys running the world? As for saving the world from World War II, Germany attacked Poland in September of 39. Where have you been for a year? If you ever sober up, try writing science fiction. You should be a whiz at that. Yuck, 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 yuck. The end. And while you guys try to digest all of that, Rich will, will entertain you with some soothing killjoy. In a bit of a history minute. Taylor asked the talisman to bring them back to Spain 1938. But the editor makes it sound like it's 1940 or so. Oops. The Spanish Civil War was fought between 1936 to 1939. The Germans and Italians openly supported the nationalist rebels under General Francisco Franco, who won, while the Soviet Union backed the Republicans in what was called the dress rehearsal for World War II. There really wasn't a secret as both sides supplied their proxies with men and material, especially this late in the war. Hell, the Lincoln Brigade was an all-volunteer group of Americans that fought on the side of the Republicans against fascism, which came back to bite them in the ass during the Red Scare days of the 1950s for fighting alongside communists. Some were communists, but most were idealistic young Americans that simply wanted to make a difference, and hundreds of them died doing it. I recently read The Lincoln Brigade by William Lauren Katz. This is a great place to remind you of Ernest Hemingway's epic For Whom the Bell Tolls which takes place in this war, and of the most famous anti-war painting of all time by Pablo Picasso, Guernica, photo in the album. On April 26, 1937, the town of Guernica was bombed at the behest of Franco by its allies, the Luftwaffe's Condor Legion and the fascist Italian Aviazione Legionera, under the command of Wolfram von Richthofen. Yes, the cousin of Manfred, the Red Baron. Wonder what he would have had to say about that. The attack gained controversy because it involved the bombing of civilians by military air force. Seen as a war crime by some historians and argued as a legitimate attack by others, it was one of the first aerial bombings to capture global attention. The number of victims is still disputed, ranging from 150 to 1,650. Spain stayed out of World War II, although with his fascist leanings, Hitler did lean on Franco a few times to join in on his side. But since his war had only ended exactly five months before Hitler invaded Poland, staying out of it was no doubt in Franco's best interest because he was still consolidating his power in a war-ravaged country. The reference on page six, panel one, to Ethiopian tribesmen downing Italian planes with spears is a reference to a legend of that feat occurring during the Italo-Abyssinian War in 1935 when fascist Italy invaded and overmatched Ethiopia, then called Abyssinia. No concrete proof of it having actually happened can be found, and the unlikely physics that would involve a plane flying low and slow enough to be struck by one, let alone downed, is obvious. <laughs> Don Quixote is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. The plot revolves around the adventures of a member of the lowest nobility, a Hidalgo from La Mancha, 
named Alonzo Quijano, who reads so many chivalric romances that he either loses or pretends to have lost his mind in order to become a knight errant to revive chivalry and serve his nation under the name Don Quixote de la Mancha. He recruits a simple farmer, Sancho Panza, as his squire, who often employs a unique earthy wit in dealing with Don Quixote's rhetorical monologues on knighthood, already considered old-fashioned at the time, and representing the most droll realism in contrast to his master's idealism. In the first part of the book, Don Quixote does not see the world for what it is, and prefers to imagine that he is living out a knightly story that was meant for the annals of all time. The book had a major influence on the literary community, as evidenced by direct references in Alexander Dumas's The Three Musketeers, 1844, Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 1884, and Edmund Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac, 1897, as well as the word Quixotic. When first published, Don Quixote was usually interpreted as a comic novel. After the successful French Revolution, it was better known for its presumed central ethic that in some ways individuals can be intelligent while their society is quite fanciful and was seen as a social commentary. But no one could easily tell whose side Cervantes was on. Many critics came to view the work as a tragedy in which Don Quixote's idealism and nobility were viewed by the post-chivalric world as insane and are defeated and rendered useless by common reality. By the 20th century, the novel had come to occupy the canonical space as one of the foundations of letters literature. Shish! <laughs> Before you move on to scene, just between you and me, I wanted to say, while you were uh, summarizing Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, it just occurred to me, that's the template for all the team-ups between Daffy Duck and Porky Pig. <laughs> Those are the personalities at play. Daffy's like the delusions of grandeur. Guy. And, Porky's, and Porky's the straight man. Yeah, he's the straight man. <laughs> Hood, Duck you know, Dodgers, Robin Hood. Yeah, like it's all there. Like the Shropshire slasher one, you know. Like they are Quixote and and Ponzo. That just hit me. <laughs> all right then. It, Glad one of us. I want well, to spang it then. You know those Looney Tunes guys were all like well-read literary dudes. Of course they they just grabbed from that and went, that's Daffy and Porky that fits. Okay, comments and commendations. Full disclosure, I've never read Don Quixote, nor seen any movie about him. All I know about it is what I wikied for the history minute and the whole tilting at windmills thing. And for a very, very long time. I thought Don Quixote was a full name, not a title and a surname. But to the story. The script wasn't all that bad, but Duranona's art did nothing for me. Especially the future scenes with the apes. The World War XII reference gave me a bit of a start, but not as much as a pink grill in a white bodysuit. Page 14, panel 2. Yeah! Even the way the colors were displayed without clear dividing lines was distracting. Page 3, panel 5 of Sancho, for example. Taylor looks like he has a bowl cut in the beginning of the story, page 2, panel 4. On page 5, panel 5, the exploding plane looks like an ink bottle was spilled on the paper. But I can find a positive panel. Page 6, panel 2, as Sancho and Taylor ride away from the flaming wreckage with a body in the cockpit is great. Agreed. And once again, on behalf of the listeners and myself, uh, thanks for the exhaustive, kick-ass, killjoy in history minute. That's just a lot of fun to listen to. And I don't read those ahead of time, people. I, I want to experience the history minute stuff 
when we record live. So that's always fun for me. So anywho, my CNC. Rich, I don't blame you at all for keeping your CNC nice and concise, as this was, after all, a very unenjoyable issue to read through. However, as you may know, I am sometimes even more fascinated by the bad issues just as much, if not more so, than the good ones. This is one of those times. See, this issue is tragically bad, in my opinion. As you alluded to, it could have been just fine and even kind of good if a different, less lazy artist had been assigned to illustrate Drake's script. In fact, as I was reading this issue and listening to us read the synopsis right now, I couldn't stop myself from reimagining the panels and pages as if they'd been drawn and colored, as you pointed out, by someone who'd actually put some effort into them. And so I became obsessed with this issue in a way that hasn't happened to me since the first time we encountered Monsieur Gravedigger. <laughs> Insert horror movie sound right there. And we just had to cover that story again in the episode previous to this one. So... Given the outsized impact that this story had and will likely continue to have on me, I have a set of somewhat more detailed comments and commendations, but I'll still try to keep them brief-ish. So bullet points, and I'm going to go fast here. Intro panel, not bad. The line, perfumed by his dedication, and the whole odor-centric metaphor was an odd but interesting quirk indeed. Again, the writing right there, really cool. Splash panel, pretty darn good even. It's quite atmospheric and detailed, making what comes after it even more insulting. Also, the German soldier's dialogue leans a bit too much on the phonetic spelling attempt. Ist hier, H-I-E-R. Come on, Arnie. You're already dealing with a lazy artist. Don't get too self-indulgent with the scripting. From page two and forward, the art nosedives hard. So I won't repeat this point as much as I have in my actual notes. Suffice to say that an overall washed out look takes over with muddy, bland, limited colors, sparse backgrounds, messy splotches of ink that Rich picked the perfect one to point out, standing in for shadows or textures becoming the norm from this point on. At least on page two, panel five, Drake, drops the educational tidbit of a character created by Miguel Cervantes four centuries ago into the affair. Page four, panel one, we got Taylor saying, for the love of Mike, and I was so desperate for something to hang on to, so I looked the phrase up, and it says, it's an expression of exasperation, surprise, or the like. Pete and Mike both are euphemisms for God, which is considered blasphemous by some. They date from the early 1900s. See also for heaven's sake, pity's sake, Pete's sake, all that. James Joyce used one in Ulysses from 1922. For the love of Mike, listen to him. So it's people who don't want to say God or whatever. So that kept me happy for a couple of minutes while I wasn't reading the comic book. Pages seven to eight, Taylor kills the tank with all the excitement of a man making a cheese sandwich. Seriously, those two panels are so boring compared to what the script's describing, that I hope Arnold Drake slapped that man in the face. Okay, page nine, panels four to five. How to make teleporting even less impressive than the original unretouched beaming effects from Star Trek, the original series. Page 10, panel three, not a bad panoramic shot. More proof that the rest of this dreck is just the result of laziness on the part of the artist. Page 11, the battle of the very tired and stiff people. Page 12, Children's coloring books are not this lazily rendered. At least in panel one, Taylor says, number one cousin, 
So we get a call back to some good old fashioned Charlie Chan racism. Yay. Page 13, panel five. What what the F is that? You, you, you'll see it. Page 14. OK, Zam, General Zam. It's Max backwards. It's a gorilla in a jumpsuit. I am mildly interested. I was, of course, confused by the reference to greens and reds as the colors of the apes slash monkeys didn't read very well, naturally, because the art's not great. Page 16, the Kong drawing on the poster looks more like Bigfoot at best. Page 17, the Armstro close-up. This might be the worst drawing in this book, and that couldn't have been easy to accomplish. So, applause. Kudos for that. Page 18, panel one. What is happening? Splotchy blob of color explosion and the talisman does something. Okay. Okay. So that wasn't very brief, but this thing haunted me, people. While I look up my letter, because I never do, uh, Rich is going to go first when we take a trip over to the mailbag at the APO Weird War Tales page. My letter is from Bob Rohde from Oak Brook, Illinois. Dear Joe, I think that Linus Sabalas has a few good points about the potential of this magazine. To be sure, there is nothing wrong with weird war tales, and some issues, like number 31, are extremely enjoyable. However, an occasional more ambitious effort would be greatly appreciated. Your novel-length stories are nice, and the change-of-theme stories are also great, like Doomsday. Still, I've yet to see a real epic appear in weird war tales. And an epic war story is something we could use. Remember the war between the legions of Mars and the combined forces of the Amazons, Valkyries, and Norse heroes and Wonder Woman number 183 and 184? That is an excellent example of what could be done with this mag. You could also loosely tie in other DC characters. Not to the extent of making this a superhero title, but it would help attract some superhero fans. Maybe a war between Aquaman's Atlantis and Lori Lamares for an intergalactic war in the 30th century, perhaps with a member or two of the Legion of Superheroes and cameo appearances. The idea of monsters in war, like the old War That Time Forgot series and Star Spangled War Stories, is perfect for your editorship, and I'd also like to see some experimentation on that front. By no means should your present supernatural-oriented tales be dropped. They are great, and also probably responsible for sales. But since you do have the sales and the monthly status, I'm glad you asked for suggestions. Yeah, okay, so you're, at least you're getting some letters, guys. But, you know, this is what you get when you ask for a full-length battle tale. <laughs> yeah, taking that into account, I'm going up to the top of the letters page and starting with a letter that goes something like this. Dear Joe. Thank you for an enjoyable 30-second issue of Weird War Tales. My Enemy the Stars by the late Bill Finger and Jerry Talayak was my favorite story this issue. I like the way the signs of the Zodiac came to life to protect the protagonist. Bill was one of my favorite DC writers and shall certainly be missed. Yeah, especially by uh, Bob Kane, who can't use him anymore for uncredited slave labor. Anyway, back to the letter. The cover puzzled me. It certainly didn't look like regular cover artist Luis Dominguez's work, and it didn't bear his initials either. Whose work was it? A Glutton for Punishment by Jack Olek and Jess Jodleman was also an appealing story, but not up to the first tale. 
Your full-length stories are always a treat. Can you tell me when to expect the next one? And that one comes from Stephen Scheibner of Jackson Heights, New York. And the editorial response is as follows. The three wars of Don Q in this issue should fulfill your request, Stephen. And we are planning our next full-lengther for sometime around number 44, if all goes well. And the cover to number 32 was by Luis Dominguez. His signature did not appear because he forgot to put it in. Sure, sure, toss LD under the bus. Man's a workhorse for you. Someone, someone could have reminded him. But okay, there we go. There's a letter where a guy's like, you know, I'd sure like some full-length battle tales. And it's like, well, have this one. We had somebody draw it who couldn't have been bothered to pay any attention and, and drew it in like one Saturday. There you go. Awesome. So that's the AP of Weird War Tales. We're going to move on from the letters page to our spotlighted ads for the issue. And I'm going to kick it off with a two-page ad in the uh, middle of the issue here. That uh, the top of which I'm not really going to talk about much, but it's it's an ad for what, some kind of Bible story thing. It's got some Joe Kubert art. It's awesome. Whatever. Anyway, the bottom page, uh, the bottom of the page of this two page ad focuses on a reprint famous first edition of All Star Comics number three. The first time the Justice Society of America appeared. It's a classic! The long-awaited collector special. An exact copy of the original in our giant size and in full color. So, this is like these days, DC calls these facsimile editions. And they're usually regular size, but they include the ads and everything like that in them. So it was neat to see an ad for this momentous issue in particular and i really wish i had one of these the giant size versions of it i've, I've read this issue on on dc universe app it is a blast and you know one of the reasons i picked this ad out or probably the main reason i really stopped and picked this ad out because this issue's got some good ones the top of this two-page spread is, is nothing to sneeze at but i've been rambling on long enough circling back I, i've recently finished reading a uh, book by Jennifer DeRoss that was about the life and career of Gardner Fox called Forgotten All-Star that really took a deep dive look on this man who was probably way more formative to the comic book industry and especially to the very spirited DC Comics than most people give him credit for. I Like, I knew of him. I knew he wrote the first appearance of the Justice Society. I knew he wrote the first issue of the Justice League. But I didn't realize how much he had done for DC Comics, and how long he had been actively writing. From before the first appearance of Superman into around 1985 or 1986. So he had covered quite the swath of the comic book industry as a working professional. And this ad just just showed me something I, I would love to to take a trip up to the Outer Limits in Waltham on Moody Street in Massachusetts, my favorite comic shop. And see if he's got a copy of this kicking around. Like I said, I've read it on the screen. I've, I've seen other reprints of it. But I would really like to have this in a giant, pulpy format magazine issue. Or magazine-sized issue. So that's that's my chosen ad. And by the way, go like I said, I'm going to repeat it again. Go on Amazon. Go on Kindle. Go Barnes & Noble. Whatever. Get yourself a copy of Forgotten All-Star by Jennifer DeRoss. It is a heck of a read. And I hope she does a sequel because she really focuses on the Gardner's DC work. And there's a lot of other stuff to talk about. And she says that right in the book. And she did a great job. Again, Forgotten All-Star, Jennifer DeRoss. 
I'm gonna hand this over to Rich. My ad is for the Ryder Technical Institute. Make your first big step a good one with Ryder training. Some people weren't cut out to be cooped up. Maybe you're one of them. You want to climb the big rig ladder and Ryder Technical is where you start your climb. By the time you've completed your training course, you will know what it's like to swing up into a big rig cab like this one. Show it who's boss. Make those 855 cubic inches of raw diesel power behave with lots of gears to tame them. Your Rider Tech course begins with home study lessons, learning the rules of the road, safety regulations for different types of cargo, drivetrains, transmissions, braking systems. Then you move on to the real thing at a Rider Trading Center. We put you through three tough weeks of driver training on the driving range and on the road, backing, docking, coupling, doing reverse serpentines, then taking the big rigs out onto the interstate. Do you got what it takes to take on the big rigs? Over 20? Good driving record? In good physical condition? Then fill out the coupon today and let's talk it over. If you're a veteran, great. Ryder Technical Institute is approved for veterans training. If you want to climb the big rig ladder, start with the pros at Ryder. And it's got the, you know half the ad it's just this black and white photo of this macho dude looking over his shoulder at the guy taking his picture like, what? <laughs> and he got the little coupon down in one corner, you know, Ryder Technical Institute. I want to know more about what it takes to boss these big rigs and you know, all the usual information. Are you a veteran? What's your age? Blah, 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 blah. Climb the big rig ladder with Ryder training. I'm like, ah, the 70s. Keep on trucking, everybody. BJ and the Bear, baby. <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit. Although they Smokey might be a little bandit. in the early. It might be a little in the early side. Smokey and the Bandit was more of like an 80s thing, but you know, tail end of all of that big thing. CB radios. And the dude looks just like you'd think he'd look too. I mean, other than that, he kind of looks more like he's breaking into the truck than he's about to drive it. But you know, thinks they had a, all that more interesting with those spotlighted ads out of the way we are gonna jump on down we're gonna truck on down form a convoy and get moving on down to a section (laughs) moving on to a section we like to call got any last words got your ears on breaker (sighs) break this was a slog a subpar performance on cover duties by ld and bad interior art are going to undercut a fair full-length story every time. Durnona has three more appearances ahead of us in WWT, but fortunately, none of them are full-length battle tales. The ads are probably the best part of this issue, and whenever that's the case, you got problems. Firestarter. Yeah, as you've no doubt guessed, I have some complicated feelings about this one. This should have been a pretty good issue, if not even a great one. That might be a little bit of a stretch, but it could have been. If only the artists gave a single tiny piece of rabbit droppings about their job. You got time travel, sentient gorillas, a connection to a classic piece of literature, a Poe slash Lovecraft style ending. Drake showed up for work. Duranona did Dora not. <laughs> so, hey, I am so clever. All right, last words out of the way. We are going to go on over to the Dead Letter office where we like to interact with and give shout outs to our listeners who gave shout outs to us and interacted with us. You know, it's the social part of the show, people. And Rich has a little bit of a tidbit for you right at the top here. 
Indeed I do. I ordered a Weird Warriors podcast shirt for Susie Q. Glansman, as she requested, and a mouse pad for myself for work. We're our own best customers. Hats, shirts, COVID masks, magnets, mugs, mouse pads. For the love of God, someone stop us. Hey, so far, I just have a mug and a shirt that uh, Gail has used as a nightshirt so often that the whole collar is just dead. So you're way ahead of me, man. Anywho, over on social media, which means the Facebook page these days, we had some likes on the uh, current episode, which came out around the holidays. It's kind of a kind of a slow dead letter office this time. But we appreciate everyone who stops by to give us a like and a shout out and all that. We got Mike Potter, David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, Tim DeForest of ComicsRadioBlogspot.com, Magazines and Monsters, Billy D's show, Mr. Billy Delicious, they, they stop by, the Deer Watchers podcast, which is all about multiverse and what-if style comics. Great show. Give it a listen if you have any interest in that kind of stuff. Luke Giaconetti from the uh, Earth Destruction Directive podcast, all about giant monster movies and TV shows. And Sir Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, which is really the way to stay in touch with what's going on with modern day DC comics. Even if you're just morbidly curious, his reviews are awesome and you will be right on the pulse of what's going on in DC these days, especially. Over on Gmail, where you can find us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. We got a letter from Tim DeForest, one highlight from which is, I wonder if Joe Orlando commissioned stories in advance for inclusion in specific issues, or if he had stories he picked from a slush file. You know, making reference to how these are anthologies, but there often seems to be a definite theme to the issues. So something to ponder. I don't know. I've never heard Joe talk about that, and I haven't seen that question asked in the letters page. So maybe that's coming up in a future APO Weird Boar Tales. Jason Zeller wrote in. He is the founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. And he had this to say, a little message for Rich, about the great brain robbery story in that issue. He said, sorry to do this to you, Rich, but that story reminded me of a, wait for it, Twilight Zone episode called The Four of Us Are Dying. So once again, I think we know where a lot of our Weird War Tales authors are lifting their plots from. So that is pretty much the dead letter office, except Rich has a heck of an addendum to add for you here. Ranger Gord posted after I revealed the winter-themed cover of Weird War Tales 33. This cover slapped me after you posted it. Because though the story is set during the Battle of the Bulge, it looked very much like photos I have seen in the Aleutian campaign. When the Japanese occupied two islands in the Alaskan island chain, and the U.S. military, aided by the Canadians from next door, I may add, spent more than a solid year evicting them, and the rest of the war making sure they, and the Soviets, didn't move back in. The Canadian Department of Defense employed several war artists in the Second World War. One of the best was Edward J. Hughes who embedded with Canadian forces in basic training in England and France and in Alaska. Here's his black and white sketch and the finished watercolor. See if you catch a resemblance in Kiska Patrol, photos in the album. I agreed and replied with The Thousand Mile War by Brian Garfield was my introduction to the war in the illusions. Weather killed more of our guys than the Japanese did. Definitely one of the forgotten fronts of the war. 
the two westernmost islands in the chain, Atu and Kiska, were the only two pieces of American territory to be occupied by enemy forces during the war. Atu also featured one of the biggest bonsai charges in the war, an assault that broke through our lines and involved rear echelon troops in savage hand-to-hand fighting. It being the Army, a unit trained in desert warfare was sent to the Arctic to evict the Japanese. There is a definite resemblance in the two pieces. So thanks, Ranger Gord. The two of us and Bill Mooney continued into a nice chat about storylines where Sergeant Rock and the Haunted Tank fought in the Aleutians and in the Pacific. And that Sergeant Rock story arc when he's fighting the Japanese was actually pretty cool. I really like that story. And from there, I suppose, I shall just hang on, move. Hang on, man. I just want to mention, uh, for those of you who might not have heard on previous episodes, Ranger Gord is the, the host and creator of the Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast, which is one of the best comic book shows out there. He'll read the summaries of Greg Sanders, the vigilante's classic appearances, like their radio play. He's great at doing voices. He includes a lot of historical points. He includes music that fits the theme of a cowboy superhero. It's just one of the best shows out there to listen to, period. And he's also a heck of a historian himself. He has some published books on history up in Canada, which I'm told is a real country. And if Rich is ever hard up for a co-host one day, I can just imagine you guys going through history minutes from both of these two. <laughs> That'd be the entire show would probably be a lot more popular, so maybe I should stop talking. Anyway, that's the Dead Letter Office. All set and out of the way. While I try to distract Rich from the fact that I just gave him a really good idea for replacing me, he can hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Uh, but then I'd have to find someone to edit and schedule all this crap, and I don't got the time for that. <laughs> all I know is Ranger Gord has a really well-edited show, so so I'm cutting my own throat here. Bye. <laughs> well, it's, it's like what they said in that one in that one uh was it the south park movie you know blame canada it's not a real country anyway <laughs> <laughs> sorry man <laughs> we, we love canada teaser as i was leading into before remember when i said that we were going to be on an interesting six episode run I didn't lie did i mixed in with two regular issues of the title were the next five special mission G.I. Sweethearts, the 64-page giant Weird War rerun issue, and now issue six. Yeah, I had a feeling 37 was going to suck, so I did this on purpose to get the taste out of our mouths. Weird War Tales number three from 1997. Time to get another oak leaf on that campaign ribbon. Toy Story, Bubber's Quarrels, Run for Your Life, Be Here, unless you think Grant Morrison is going to let you down. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Grant Morrison can uh, can really uh, divide audiences, so I am looking forward to it. I'm I'm much more on the side of pro Morrison, as you know. So I am hyped. I can't wait. I don't even care who else. <laughs> is it's going to be fantastic. I don't care. You don't understand the Invisibles. Don't cry to me. All right. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. This is not the Grant Morrison podcast. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors. We have been the Batlam Bros. I am Max. He is Rich. And we promise to make war. No more.